It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Peter Lavangi, President and Chief Executive Officer of Bay State Milling Company. Pete's responsible for all functional areas of the company and its daily operating activities. He joined Bay State Milling in 2004 as the Vice President of Strategic Planning. In 2009, the board elected him President and Chief Operating Officer, and he was named CEO in 2016. Previously, Pete was Chief Operating Officer of EFS Network, offering supply chain solutions to the food service industry. He began his career with Cargill and had various merchandising and general management positions, both after and before attaining his MBA from Harvard Business School. He achieved his bachelor's degree from Dartmouth College. Pete currently serves as the chair of the board of Project Bread, the leading anti-hunger organization in Massachusetts. He's an avid runner and marathoner, enjoys spending time and traveling with his wife and three children, and loves being in the mountains of Montana, the birthplace of his wife. Peter Levange, welcome into the corner office. Thanks, Brent. Oh, great to have you here, Pete. And uh, I hate to say it, but I'm in sunny Southern California. I know you've had your third or fourth Nor'easter this year, but how, how are you holding up in the Boston area? Is the airport closed and the roads cleared up again? You know, it's um, it, it, since I'm essentially homebound, those right, things right. that I would normally pay attention to, uh, I'm not even sure, Brent, but I'm here. Well, the pandemic has its advantages, doesn't it, right? We, we don't have to be out on the road. Uh, of course, there is the shoveling that has to be done, but then that's kind of regardless of whether we were homebound or not. Well, listen, it's great to hear your voice and have you back. We spoke a, a week or so ago, but speaking of the pandemic, how are you doing? How's your family and and, and how's Bay State milling at, with regards to you know all that's happened uh, in this last 11, 12 months? Well, thanks for asking. My my family as well. We've had a few uh, challenges with COVID, but but relative to many others, um, we're doing great. I think the uh, the company has managed uh, the challenges of COVID extremely well. Mm. I, I think you know the business. We've got three different businesses, and right. and one has really thrived. I would say another has had mixed results. And then and then a third, which is more of a startup, highly dependent on new product development, is a little bit stalled, which has been one of the, yeah. the challenges of COVID. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, food production is an essential industry. Has, uh, you know, Base 8 Million done well overall? Are you guys about the same as you were a year ago or as the other parts of the business that have suffered hit you a bit from a, you know, financial growth standpoint? We are about on par with last year. I would huh. say we were yeah. uh, coming into COVID uh, pretty evenly balanced between away from home and at home eating. We we right, certainly right. suffered, uh, particularly in April when the whole country was shut down, and 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 that that was not an easy time, and it took us a while to climb out. But the team has done an excellent job pivoting, which is you know the the pro- perhaps overused term these days, but pivoting <laughs> where we needed to, and and you know really shoring up some of the risks that have been involved and then really exploiting some of the opportunities. So on balance I think weird. we feel pretty blessed and our team has you know we've had we've got nine plants and they've all been operating through wow. through it all and yeah. um yeah. have done an excellent job managing the human um side of this in terms of uh personal safety risk. So Good. really proud of them there. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear it. And hopefully with vaccine, vaccines uh, getting extended throughout the country and <clears throat> a lot of the safeguards in place, things will uh, begin to tick up. We're, we're recording this in um, kind of mid-February. I think it's going to probably be released a, a little bit later in the year. But once again, c- congrats on that. And I'm glad to hear that your family and your staff are well. But uh, let's talk about you, uh, a little bit about your early years. Tell us where you grew up and what your early family life was like, Peter. Well, I'm a I'm a Boston guy, so I grew ah. up in a in a suburb of Boston, one of the older towns in in the United States, dead in Massachusetts, a right. uh, little dead end street there, um, and and spent most of my life uh, here outside of Boston until college started, and then right. uh, went to college in the New England area, but then after yeah, that have yeah. have lived all over, but then. Managed to make my way back here uh, to uh, my roots, which has been terrific. Dar- Dartmouth and Harvard, no, no, no easy, uh, you know, passes there for either of those. I don't think I mentioned it, but actually, my daughter is a twenty-oneer. She's a senior this year at Dartmouth, and it's been a tough go for a lot of kids in school. I, I know that you've got some kids school age too, but uh, she certainly joined the experience there. And I think you were there in the uh, in the early nineties, right? Late eighties, early nineties. I was. I graduated in ninety-one, and in fact, we have that in common. My oldest daughter is also class of 21. Is she really? She oh my is. gosh, great. Is she in sports at all? My daughter's a rower, actually. No, so, she's yeah. a singer and, and quite involved in some of the more uh, social justice activities up there. So, ah, um, yeah. Cool. Well, great to that. great to have that in the family. But uh, let's talk about a little bit about your earlier days. Brothers and sisters, only child. What, what was it like growing up in that part of Boston? You bet. I'm. I am uh, one of four. I am the four. only son. So I've got an okay. older sister and two younger sisters. Right. Cool. And mom and dad work from the home. Mom, I suppose, perhaps uh, during that period, or was she also a professional? That's right. So my father is a second generation owner operator of a kind of classic uh, town pharmacy, um, oh. and, and in many respects was the the last one standing as as that industry got consolidated. And my mother um, actually worked over uh, most of her time. Uh, as an administrative assistant between Boston College and then over at the College Ooh. Board. 
Right. Right. Cool. So in, in, in uh, education, mom and dad probably believed in that as well. Did all four of you go on to, to, to colleges and attain your degrees? We did. We did. Yeah. I think early on, that was a big focus of my folks. I mean, both of them um, were probably didn't have the choices, circumstances. My mother was grew up in a family where uh, of four as well, four, three siblings, yeah. two girls and another sister. And, 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 and the women were not expected to go to college. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so she didn't really have yeah. a good shot. And then my father was, is, was forced into a path and that his father, my grandfather had a stroke. And so his, mm. his path, which seemed open in front of him became uh, very clear that he needed to learn the pharmacy yeah, yeah, profession. Great. So they yeah. were they were very committed to investing in education and making sure we had a lot of choices. So Boston is known for its long lineage in terms of folks that you know kind of grow up there and stay there. Were, were they both from um, you know the Boston area originally? Yes, very yeah. parochial. My 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 father, <laughs> our house on this little dead end street, I think was as the crow flies less than a half a mile away from where he grew up. And, nice. and my mom was a couple miles away. So yeah, cool. Great. What were some of the earliest memories you have maybe of some of the imprinting that they did? Uh, you know, any wise words of advice that mom and dad gave you as you were growing up that, you know, kind of steered you on your way? A- absolutely. I think, I think a couple of things that were sort of family values. One was really hard work. And though mm. my, though my mom did not start working outside the house uh, until my youngest sister uh, went off to high school. Um, They were just incredibly hardworking people. You know, my father went through a period where um, he lost his sort of right hand Mm. in in the store, not his physical right hand, his right hand person. And, uh, (laughs) you know, he was banging it out like seven days a week for almost two years. Um, And then, and then my mom, who was um, really active in the community and also active in, in promoting a lot of extracurricular activities for us. Just she, she just was um, tireless, you know. So they that was good, a big part of it. I think the other thing both of them share is this notion of kindness. You know, mm. just very kind people. Mm. Uh, be respectful in the community. Mm. Um, so absolutely, and. Uh, um, had, had a big impression on, I think my work ethic, um, and, and how I like to show up in the world. Awesome. I know the standards for uh, Dartmouth entry are high, <laughs> having been through that myself with, uh, my youngest. So I assume you were a fairly good student in school. What were the things that you excelled at? What did you enjoy elementary, high school, those periods? Yeah. So, um, I was super fortunate in that back to my parents being committed to education, I, I actually attended um, an all-boys school for both middle school and high school uh, called Roxbury Latin, which right. is notable in that it's the oldest school in continued existence in, in the U.S. So it's founded wow. in 1645. Wow. Wow. And uh, yeah, tremendous sort of history. And, and yeah. um, but it, it, it really, having grown up in Dedham and with parents who are, were fairly parochial in their view of the world, uh, though loving and, and hardworking, you know, going to a place like Rashville and just totally opened my eyes. It was, yeah. it was, it's a very, very challenging environment academically. Yeah. Right. A lot's expected of you, but 
at the same time, they really promote you to stretch, try different activities. Um, so I was athletic. So, you know, played sports, captain of the soccer team. We had a very successful lacrosse team, sang in the glee club and in an acapella group, right. editor of the paper, um, wow. class officer. It was just a fantastic. You're a real underachiever, Peter. <laughs> well, better be lucky than good. I think, I think, you know, as I, I, I have, I have a dear, uh, mentor who, you know, quotes, uh, and I think it's Charlie Chaplin that, you know, half a life is just showing up, but, um, right. no, a lot, a lot of energy and, and academically I did, I did do well. I think, um, what I learned at a place like Roxbury Latin is just how much excellence there is in the world. And, um, you know, I think that sure, uh, you know, I, things on a relative basis, I, I think academically I, I tend to do well, but I generally, you know, for, for that cream of the crop intellect, if it takes her an hour to do the work, it takes me three, but I'll, <laughs> but I'll make sure we're both done on time. <laughs> you got that hard work ethic. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. What about entrepreneurial things? Anything you were involved with growing up that, uh, you know, gave you that extra spending money? Yeah, I would say, you know, I have a, like, I, I, I love the new, I love trying new things. Mm. Um, I, I would never classify myself as particularly in the world today, the sorts of entrepreneurs we have that have achieved so many great things. I think I have an entrepreneurial spirit, but back to, to, um, how I expressed perhaps my interest in, um, doing things, it, you know, I always was working you know, raking leaves, shoveling driveways, both for um, family for generally discounted prices, like my grandparents, and then, uh, <laughs> and then, and then the neighbors. Um, but always had jobs at my father, his store, he had a building. Um, and then, and then just had a lot of s summer jobs. So, um, and had the opportunities to, to, to try a lot of different things. Did you have some, some, um, you know, hobbies that, uh, you know, kind of, uh, the pocket money went towards during those years that you enjoyed outside of school? Absolutely. I mean, I loved, I, I was very athletic. What were your sports? So they were, uh, soccer was, was absolutely number one and, yeah. and, and really still have a passion for that. I also, um, started playing lacrosse in middle school and, and oh, cool. high school and grew to love that. Cool. And though uh, it would hard, be hard for you to appreciate, Brent, this was not, you know, a, 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 the wisest. I loved basketball. Uh, but, but when I sort of topped out at 5'7", um, <laughs> in high school, I, I decided there was probably a different path. So I focused on those other two. Right, but I, but I right. love also. And, and I'm a huge runner now. So I, I you know, I do usually knock out a marathon a year and, and love to run. Uh, but That's hobbies, awesome. you know, the spending money stuff, I love music. And, you know, mm. and back then, if you think about, um, how we accessed music, you know, first there were records. Right. Yeah. Yeah. My, my first record was uh, Saturday Night Fever. I, <laughs> I love I, it. I, I love it. I'm a little bit ashamed to, to admit to that, but it's true. Um, I love it. The Bee Gees rocking it out. Yeah, um, sure. and, and I recall, um, geez, I don't even know, Rant, I must've been in fifth grade. I would, um you know, they had the, th the, these, these devices, I guess is the common boom boxes, right? Oh, right. You could put sure. a cassette ta tape in the boom box. <laughs> and so 
uh, I would ride my bike to a local merchandiser, one of these uh, big stores back then. I think it was called Leechmere. And I literally would walk into the store and just gaze at the boom boxes. And then I'd figure out how much money I had. And then I'd start closing the gap. Um, I think it probably took me a year to buy that boom box. Um, I love it. Yep. I love it. Those things were great. So, so college obviously was in your future. A lot of, you know, um, parental leadership, I'm sure in that area. And you went on to stu study government, uh, as I understand it at Dartmouth. First of all, you know, the, the choice of Dartmouth, tell us a little bit about that and in your field of study. Dartmouth was, became a really clear choice um, as, as I started to look at schools in that what really appealed to me is, is I definitely wanted to, to go to a place that um, had a great reputation hmm. for academic excellence. And so that, yeah. that sort of checked that box. Um, at the time, and I, I think it's still true, it's got a very outdoorsy culture, yep, which sure I appreciated. What was it called in freshman year? I know our daughters both went through that where they, you know, they go off into the woods. Yeah, the freshman trip, they go off for a week or so. My daughter loved that. Yeah, it's great. And and it's just a beautiful setting. I think the other thing that that really resonated and 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 true or not, I think it was at least as I walked through the school and it was it was a place for people who were intellectual and and mm -hmm. generally excelled at 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 many things, but didn't take themselves too seriously. Yeah. yeah um yeah. and that really felt right to me. So, uh, and, and, and as I said, I think my experience, the friends I made, the activities I participated, it seemed to, to ring true. Great community there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and went on to study government. Was there an interest to get into government at one point in time, or was that the, the liberal arts path you chose, uh, based on, you know, the, the field of study, so to speak? Right. College for me was, you know, coming in there, really not in, having a professional sense of direction, I fully embraced liberal arts. Hmm. And, and, and it was really, I took a lot of classes in, in different areas. I, I actually, and, and I think these days it would count as sort of officially as a minor. I did take quite a bit of economics um, mm -hmm. in, in late, probably as I got into my junior year, I sort of figured that I didn't want to be a doctor, didn't want to be a lawyer. And then you say, well, what's left? Um, yeah. You know, there's lots of cool professions, but I, I, I found myself drawn to the business community. So um, government was really I, what drove me there within the liberal arts experience was I was really fascinated with um, a few things, comparative um, government, just mm -hmm. different systems, um, how culture, geography tends to, to impact those systems and then international relations. And in particular, I spent, uh, 1989, the fall, if you recall, that's the, the time oh, the, yeah. the wall came down. Dartmouth yeah. had great study abroad programs. And I, mm. I happened to be in Budapest. On a, oh my gosh. Fantastic. And it was just fascinating. I was literally in the streets of Prague <sighs> when the green revolution, um, started. And so yeah, was the, that your sophomore year or your junior That year? was my junior year. Junior yeah, fall and terrific. it was really cool and I and I right. think that seeing you know living under a crumbling system yeah, yeah. Um, that was in place in the Eastern Bloc is just fascinating. Yeah, so great um, experience. Yeah, it was great. What was the first job you took out of Dartmouth? So the first job, and I'm super grateful 
to uh, Dartmouth for this. So I, I actually worked at Dartmouth. Um, it was the winter of my junior year. I was an athlete, mm-hmm. so I was up there training for lacrosse. Yeah, and I I had to be on campus to train, but I I wasn't in class because of the funky Dartmouth system. And I right. I I took a job at their career center, and oh, so cool. that was very uh, formative in that I I helped the uh, woman that actually ran the whole corporate recruiting program. Oh, and it was through cool. that that I started to really get to see with different organizations, companies, and um, going into my my junior year summer, I really wanted to do something different. I hadn't seen much of the world, but I got a good flavor for it doing this study abroad program. And um, the woman that ran the Career Center pushed me to uh, interview with a company called Cargill, oh, which, yeah. you know, Way back in 1990, uh, particularly those of us who've grown up in the Northeast would have never heard of Cargill. Right, sure, <laughs> and, sure. Uh, well, that, that billion dollar privately owned company that no one yeah, heard of. Yeah, I think they're yeah, about 120 yeah. billion these days. I know. And yeah, so, crazy. so I interviewed with them um, and, and they were incredibly, even then, uh, global, which was yeah, fascinating right. to me. This whole right. sort of yeah. wanting to live abroad. But <laughs> so we hit it off. I interviewed... I went out to their corporate headquarters, which I had never seen anything like that, Brent. It's a beautiful corporate headquarters. I mean, you know, it rivals any any fortune. Are they in, in Michigan, Wisconsin? I know it's just outside of Minneapolis, Minnetonka. Minneapolis, right. And it was just incredibly impressive. So I was really yeah, like, wow, yeah. this is super cool. I hit it off with other people. And then they offered me the job and they said, Pete, um, this is going to be great, you know, it's either going to be Minneapolis, Seattle, Denver, a whole bunch of cities. I'm like, wow, any of those would just be fascinating. And so the term, you know, it's getting to the end of of the term and summer is approaching and, you know, the phone rings in my dorm because, you know, back then we had the pay phones. Hey, you know, Levangie, the phone's for you. I pick up the phone and the recruiter who couldn't have been more earnest said, Pete, we have the best internship for you. <laughs> and, 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 and he said, I can't, you're going to have the best time. This is such a great opportunity. It's in Cedar Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And I got to tell you, Brent, <laughs> oh, man, geography of the United States is not, you know, like as, as, a, as, a, as a parochial Bostonian, I was sure. like, yeah, cosmopolitan. that's I one of those I states. You know, I'm like, where the heck is... Iowa. And uh, I literally, Uh, there was no going back. There was no plan B. So I got off the plane in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and this wonderful gentleman who ran that business picked me up and I had a lacrosse stick in one hand and a bag in the other. And he asked me, uh, have you ever heard of a soybean? And I said, never heard of one. So he took me out to a soybean field. And so back to what I did after college. So that was a fabulous internship. Yeah. Was that a one-year program, Pete? Or it was just the long? summer. But, just the summer. Wow. But, you know, wow. I was fortunate. They they uh, offered me an opportunity to come back full-time when I was done with school. Mm-hmm. I did yeah. look around, but what I ended up doing, Brant, sorry, long answer to a simple question. So, my first full-time job was with Cargill. 
And so, and, and then were, how long were you with them? What was that? Um, did you kind of go up, did you go back to Cedar Rapids or where, where, where did they put you? I, so I ended up going all, I started in Georgia and in the job, it's, it was such a terrific job. So I, I worked in one of their bigger businesses, which was uh, an ingredient business. They actually processed um, oil seeds, primarily a soybean, right? And all kinds. It was mostly vegetable oil, right? So, right. so they actually separate the protein and the fat, and the protein is what is called soybean meal. It feed goes into um, the uh, food system as feed for chickens, hogs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I was down in Georgia at a plant in this job where you source the raw material, which is a uh, what we call a hedgeable commodity, soybeans. Mm-hmm. You manage the risk, so you're actually trading futures, buying and selling. And you're also collaborating locally with a whole cross-functional team of engineers, operations people, accounting. And it was just super cool. That, so I did that. I went up to Minneapolis um, and, and was promoted to, a, to more of a trading job that was more global, that was fascinating. And then I left for a year. So back to how long did I stay at Car- I left for a year, did a year of volunteer work it was a bit of a sabbatical, you could call it. Cargill was incredibly supportive in Montana, wow. uh, working with at-risk children. Wow. And uh, then came back to Cargill, uh, was in Norfolk, Virginia, then went back to business school. Did they give you leadership responsibilities early on and prior to the business school period? Because I know you went back to them afterwards, and we'll talk about they that They did. They, uh, yeah. another, I think, and you just, um, and I think about this quite a bit, um, you know, I think at that time, one thing that really distinguished a company like Cargill is they were really aggressive to um, give people responsibility, perhaps more than, you know, the resume would suggest they have earned. Right. Right. And in fact, when I, this little stint that I did in Virginia, um, which was after I went to uh, Montana for the year. So I had about two years of experience with Cargill and then sort of three years since college. I actually was put in as an interim manager of that facility. Wow. So I went from- At a very young age. Oh. An incredibly young age. Yeah, I, I, it was yeah. like drinking from a fire hose, man. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. There was a Terrific. lot of phone calls to a lot of people like, now this person <laughs> said this to me. Because really, you know, to your point, you know, it's a craft, right? Management, sure. leadership, you learn yeah, it. And the human yeah. element um, is so experience driven in terms of how you manage it. So it was it was um, way more than I deserved and, and way more than, than I could handle, but we, we figured it out and it, and it went just fine. What were some of the lessons you learned during that, 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 that assignment in particular? Yeah, I think that one, um, the importance of really um, listening, to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, everybody, it, it, it was in fact a, a pretty tough situation where the former manager had been let go for some uh, unfortunate circumstances, mm-hmm. and uh, and you came in instead. You were, you were his replacement. I was a um, placeholder. They had mm-hmm. hired a Interim. man yeah. um, that had been working in Brazil who just couldn't get up there for several months, and Got so it. I was sort of the the, the, the gap filler and, yeah. but boy, the climate was incredibly unhealthy. There was a mm. lot of distrust. Um, mm. 
multiple yeah. versions for every story. So I think um, slowing things down, listening, mm. not yeah. rushing to judgment. And then, mm. as I said earlier, um, not being afraid to ask for help. You know, I, good, I good was story. blessed yeah. in that uh, a place like Cargill that is so big is was really deep and wide with a lot of management expertise. So there was mm. a lot of people to call um, to ask for for help and advice. Do you remember the first time you started managing people, Pete? Well, the formal, it really was then. It was that, it was then. that, that yeah. experience because okay. all of a sudden yeah. I went from zero to, uh, uh, oh, geez, there were probably eight people reporting to wow. me. Um, yeah. I, I probably did those people a tremendous disservice for that six months or so, but um, <laughs> but I was trying anyway. But I would say the, 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 the next... Um, and, and when I was in Montana doing this volunteer work, I, I did have some staff management responsibilities. So um, that was an interesting one. But the big step up was when I finished business school and took on yeah. um, full gen general management responsibilities. Right. So so you went to HBS. Did, did Cargill support that effort in terms of, you know, the financial part of it or take a break, kid, and we'll, we'll hire you back when you're done? Yeah. So Cargill was... was um, terrific about it. And and they had just started to recruit MBAs. And mm -hmm. so they had not yet um, fully committed to the notion of whether the MBA was um, an overall positive thing versus mm -hmm. just working your way up. So the initial conversation went like this to, to some trusted mentors and, and the man that ran uh, the business, um, the global business that I was in. Well, Pete, um, we think it'd be better if you just stay here <laughs> because yeah. they're really, is it, is it money? Do you need more money? <laughs> but I think he was quite sincere, you know, and he, he, yeah, sure. he had they didn't quite see the value of it. Right? Well, he's, you know, I think the point of view was, look, we can give you lots of different experiences all yeah, over the world yeah. with different types right. of businesses and what could be better. That being said, we, by the time we were done with that conversation, um, we, we had landed on, if I were to come back after right. business school, they, they would help pay for part of it. So, mm -hmm. so there was an incentive to come back, um, which, which I was really grateful that they were willing to what was put your, out there. What was your motivation? Did you just feel you kind of reached a point that you wanted to, you know, kind of retool, learn some new school, new, new tools? Did you kind of recognize that? you know, that was a, a good career move in terms of your future resume building. You know, what, what were the motivations around taking that break and, and, and then coming back? Yeah. So the, I, I think it was a few things. Number one, I, I really w started to learn that, that, that business was a, and, and aspects of, of leadership in business was a craft to learn. And yeah, yeah. I was very committed to this notion of general management, you know, the, the mm -hmm, running mm -hmm. an organization, leading. And there were gaps. There were true, you know, things like the basic fundamentals of finance and accounting. And right, right. so I wanted some very specific skills. I, I think there were two other reasons. One was um, that... Uh, it was a bit of a hedging strategy. I, you know, I, I really loved working at Cargill. I loved the experience. And, and I didn't doubt that, in fact, that perhaps uh, had I stayed there, I, I'm not sure, um, 
my experience would have been any worse in some respects. Mm. It, it mm. just pure learning the business, particularly the agribusiness food system. Um, but but I wanted the ability to have something on the resume um, that people would take notice of, right? Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. um, quite honestly, it, it, for me, I I. I didn't really want to go to just any business school. I, for, I was sort of like, if I'm going to do this and commit the time and the money, uh, I want to go somewhere that has a strong brand. Right. Um, and then the third reason, Brent, is I, I said to myself, you know, I'm on this weird path. I've lived in a number of different places already. I can see myself perhaps living all over the world. And I, and I was like, geez, I may never get home. <laughs> and and I want to go home for a little bit. So, right, you know, right. having having grown up in the Boston area. Yeah. yeah. Um, Harvard was a good choice. Yeah. Well, I, I know that that I'm sure you went in there, particularly given that that Cargill maybe wasn't as supportive as they could have been uh, for you to go on to get your MBA with with a mind. Well, maybe I'll go back. Maybe I'll look at something else. But you did go back and and tell us a little bit about your thinking there. What you know, what kind of led you to that decision that that was a place you wanted to go back to after you graduated from HBS? Yeah. So this is the late. 90s. I graduated yeah. from business school in 97. One of the things I, I, you know, I should also say that the benefit of going back to school was to learn more about what's out there, right? To sure. really figure out and understand what what other sorts of organizations, businesses um, might be of interest. So there was a lot of investigation, searching, um, and the one thing I figured out. Um, probably about halfway through Brent was, um, I, I am drawn to this notion of general management leadership, um, taking responsibility for sort of the bottom line of, of the organization. And at right. that time, um, you know, the notion of coming out of business school as in your, you know, mid to late twenties, and and someone was going to give you a consequential general management job to run a PL. There weren't many of them. You know, right. the classic sure. tracks were investment banking. Yeah, you know. consulting. But but then the bigger, yeah. incredibly well-respected organizations often had a development program that would sure. put you down that path that could last three right. years and then and then you get a PL. And and quite honestly, I was impatient. I had tasted it with Cargill. Yeah. Um, and, and then the other path, and I think, and, and I think it's amazing for, for people today was certainly the entrepreneurial path. But, but sure. I would say in my time, not many people, um, uh, at least at Harvard were going out and starting their own businesses right out of the shoot. Right. Some did, right. um, it was the beginning of the dot-com boom. So, sure. so that was, so, you know, you asked me earlier about this notion of, um, what were my entrepreneurial sort of efforts right, early? Right. And, you know, that's another sort of crossroads where there were people, um, good friends of mine sort of uh, amazingly taking on these, what seemed like, you know, oddball businesses at the time. And, um, I had a lot of respect for them, but, but for me back to Cargill, I wanted a PL. The other thing at that time, Brent, I, I still had this, um, one desire to to live um around the world and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the job they offered me um was to go build a business in ukraine 
And I wow. and I had a lot of interest, you know, that whole Budapest, the sort yeah. of east-west, yeah. former Soviet Union, blah, blah, blah. Right, right. And um and 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 then I got engaged, and and my wife, who is an adventure spirit, was like, "All right, let's do it." Um, so we <laughs> so we were bound for Ukraine. That 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 sort of uh -huh. that was where we thought we were going, mm -hmm. but that's not what happened because <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> we took the summer off, and uh, we're going to drive cross country. We we didn't have much, but we sold everything we had because we were going to Ukraine. It was a furnished housing arrangement. Right. And, you know, this is before readily available cell phones. So we rented one of those big brick phones <laughs> and um, we're getting ready to be, disappear for eight weeks. And I called my boss at Cargill and I said, hey, just checking in because I'll be out of touch for eight weeks. Um, kind of button up some things, you know, the logistics of the whole Ukrainian thing. Right. Right. And he said, oh, Pete. And this was very classic Cargill. It was like so wild back then. He said, "We, yeah, we, we've been trying to get in touch with you. I, that who knows if he was really trying to get in touch with me. I don't know when they would have actually called me, but they said, you know what, Ukraine thing is off. You know, the parliament, um, the 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 former co um, communists sort of took over parliament. We're shutting down Western investment. Cargill was backing off." Um, plans had to change. And they said, but we have this ugh, amazing job for you. It was like back to Cedar Rapids kind of story. <laughs> yeah, you knew that was coming. Yay. And um, <laughs> so but it was an amazing the job. They 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 had restructured <laughs> some of their North American operations, one of these bigger businesses. And um, so it was a new job, but it was a very big PL. Um, and and it was an opportunity to run a business that was restructured. So not new businesses, but new business configuration. Um, and, and in fact, I went back to the Southeast, uh, oh. my second trip through Georgia and spent a lot yeah. of time um, working in, in, in the Southeast. But with Cargill, I was, I was all over. Um, so that was the first job out of school. Well, let's skip ahead because I want to talk a little bit about Bay State Milling. I, I know that you got a C-suite uh, opportunity at EFS Network and, and left Cargill for that. But I know you've got a pretty interesting story that that lands you at Bay State. And you've been there, gosh, what, 17, 18 years now. And uh, tell us a little bit about that journey and, and how you first uh, came into that uh, role. Yeah, what, it was really a, a geographic, it was a marriage of geographic convenience to start, yeah. um, Brant, the um, I had been at that company and, and helped start at EFS Network. We had gone through a major uh, transaction where we merged and um, we moved the company headquarters to California. It was a much um, more focused path on being a true tech company rather than sort of this hybrid tech company serving food companies. Um, and after the merger, I, I maintained my position is number two, but mm -hmm. uh, it just, the combination of California and, and, and I, my heart and soul is really in this food system. Yeah. So, um, more importantly, my father had some health issues mm. and, you know, despite my desire to live all over the world, once, uh, my wife and I started having children and we have three, uh, and they were quite young at this time. Um, we felt the pull to be among family. 
And so we made what was probably uh, not the wisest uh, financial maneuver at the time and said, hey, let's just move back to Boston. I Mm. I kept my job and and sort of was commuting out to the West Coast, um, but was very forthright with my new, the new CEO of the merged entity and and started thinking about repositioning my career and doing that. A former business school professor introduced me to, um, at that time, the president of Bay State Milling and one of the mm. principal owners. And it was, you know, dumb luck. They were really just starting to think about the next generation of their management. Yeah. The business, had, the industry had been through some tough times post um, Atkins diet, uh, right. the anti-carbohydrates sure. and, and Bay State yeah. Milling, if we we haven't discussed this already. Its history is about 122 years now of milling wheat, among other right. things that we do. Right. But, but it, you know, the 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 pitch went like this: Look, we're, you know, we we uh, need to be rebuild the management team. We think there's a lot of room to um, for a person like you to make a difference. Um, and and for me, I wanted to to be on that path to run a company. And uh, Brian Rothwell, again, the, the the former president, now our chairman, said, "Look, you know, we're a family-owned business, but but the next CEO, there's no guarantee it's going to be family, and so yeah, yeah. the path is open for you, and 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 everything worked out well." And did did you come in as CEO or did no, you no, come no, in no, no, no? I came. I worked for Brian. I was the. They sort of because again, they weren't actively yet right. rebuilding the team. They made me VP of strategy. And, th- and there was a lot of work to be done. You know, there was a yeah, lot of yeah. things that needed uh, rethinking. Um, there was a lot of, ter- and still are, terrific, long-serving employees who were functionally excellent at, at these sort of discrete parts of the business. And it's it's a really, really tough business. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but there hadn't been a lot of... Um, current thinking about how to organize ourselves, the importance of, I, I would call it um, at that time, kind of modern teaming. Um, right, right. So we did some work on the strategy, which which uh, has served us well. And there was just a lot of room to help impact um, uh, what we'd call more the, the health side of the business. So there were some good mm-hmm. sort of yeah. smarts, but but lots of room in the health. And that was and has been a... a, a Big focus, yeah. Yeah. When, when did you step into the CEO role? Just over three years ago. So, okay. yeah. you know, it was yeah. about a, I like to joke, it was about a 12-year interview. Um, <laughs> they were still checking, yeah. Well, with a family business, were they three, third or fourth generation? So we are oh, now fourth generation owned fourth generation. and we've got yeah. some fifth generation employees. And you mentioned nine manufacturing plants. How many employees in total? Uh, so it's about 550 employees, yeah. you know, it's much more kind of capital intensive thing, big plants, right. less people. Um, right. and, and, and the size of the company is about three times now the size from when we started. When you, when you joined. Yeah. Oh, when they started. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, no, no, no. When I started. So when you call started. that, oh. you know, just yeah. over to your point, you know, 15, 16 years yeah. ago. And, um, but the number of people is not dramatically different. So, you know, mm. through yeah. the types of processing we do, automation. Efficiencies. Yeah. And, and what you've seen is a shift um, more towards um, R&D, marketing, um, 
So same number of people, just kind of different composition. Yeah. How would you say your leadership styles evolved over time, particularly during this last 17 years there at Basie Millen? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I think um, some things that haven't changed are this notion of um, just trying to bring a lot of energy and passion to the job. But mm. I think 15 plus years ago, Brant, a lot of things that were important were, uh, and, and this was... Um, very successful at a place like Cargill, at least for me personally, you know, challenging the status quo, challenging people to rise to the occasion, really being, working hard to be the change agent. Um, I think what is different now is a lot more focus on building trusts, creating an opportunity for people to be more vulnerable, to access their whole mm. selves. Um mm. And, and, and more about encouraging others to drive the change. Yeah. And I'd say uh, another big distinction is gratitude. You know, I, mm. I think that, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago, um, I, I, I had less of a sense of how grateful someone like me should be for, um, you know, my privilege, the opportunities, the people that um, help supported. And, and now I really, and I have a lot more work to do on this, um, and much more deliberate to catch people doing the right thing, you know, yeah, just yeah. telling them how terrific that was. And, and, and a lot of times mm. it's not about, um, landing the big customer, developing the next product. It's the mm. effort, right? Yeah, um, little things. Yeah. Absolutely. Company culture is such a big part of it, particularly given the you know fourth generation family ownership. What would you say is most unusual or, or perhaps unique about Bay Millen? Yeah, well, you know, it starts with the benefit of that notion of kind of multi generational ownership, yeah. Yeah. and so you know things that um, I think make us unique are this notion of uh, caring. It's a it's a very um, caring culture, but yet competitive at the same time, right? Mm, so these sort of, mm. you, you'd think those things can't actually coexist. Um, I think the, the the notion of humility is very, mm. very important for us, which is integral to the way we do the work. It's a, it's a kind of business that um, the analog is more like a football team rather than a basketball mm. team. And, mm. yeah, lots you know, of moving parts. Yeah. lots of moving parts, lots mm. of different jobs, incredibly important that those are well synchronized, that there's lots of trust um, and not a lot of room for superstars to um, capture the spotlight. And yeah. um, so it's kind of a it's a we deal versus I. Mm. But I but I think the distinct parts are this notion of. um Kindness, humility, and, and I'd add one more. I, there's an incredible devotion to sort of being service-minded, whether it's mm, uh, yeah. our customers, our internal or external customers. You know, I always joke, you know, with our uh, some of our operational people, and we we are we are very inclined to always try to be different. We sort of compete on the base of differentiation, but um, you know, when we're, when we're dealing with difficult operational issues, <laughs> I always remind people, put a customer's name on it and you will get everybody's attention. Mm. You know, 
it, it, it's it's fascinating you know it, telling people hey we'll we'll make another x y or z on the bottom line not that we're not um attentive to our um uh responsibility and opportunity to grow the bottom line but you put a customer name or a team member's name on it and it's like wow makes a big if difference. that's what it's about yeah. it sort of personalizes yeah. it and yeah yeah well, we're just about out of time, but I've got two last questions that I'd really love to get your insights on. And Pete, the first one is, what do you personally look for when you're, you know, making bets on the people you invest in and hire? Yeah, such a great question. And and um, I will humbly say I am still learning. Um, <laughs> but but I think it is it is it is largely uh, a big part of of a manager and leader's role. Um you know, when I when I think about making bets on people, um, I tend to to want to have baseline some some smarts. You know, there's mm-hmm. just got to be mm-hmm. sort of a core. And 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 a lot of this is contextual. We tend to do hard things, so that's smart problem solving, um, values driven, and yeah. and um, you know, values are. Uh, it's an open market for values. So the things within those values that we care about are the very things I talked about our culture, right? You know, this notion of service-minded leadership, right. humility. Um, but but those are those are big ones. Problem solving smarts, service-minded leadership. Um, and and I'd say the last one is grit. Um mm. it is this is a you know, we Agriculture is the base of the business. You know, yeah. everything that we do starts with growing something. And and I'll tell you, partnering with Mother Nature, you better have grit because uh, she she's, it gets back to that hard work you learned. Yeah, up she's as a, kid a tricky one, uh, very yeah. unpredictable. Yeah. So, right. Right. Um, a lot of forces that that uh, no matter how you hard you work, um, you you're going to get the curveball. Well, lastly, Pete, you know, we obviously have a lot of folks listening to this uh, podcast, perhaps some folks in your company, perhaps folks who want to work there at one day or others that are maybe just, you know, looking for some career advice. What, what would you say to someone who perhaps has their eyes on the corner office, you know, maybe 10, 15 years behind you in your career? Yeah, I'd say three things. First, um, you you should really have a sense of what it's like when you get there. Um, mm. I, 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 and, and no one should feel sorry for a CEO. That is not the point here, <laughs> but it's a lonely job. Um, you know, if you are accustomed to a lot of positive feedback, if you are someone who really needs a lot of um, attention from your manager, th- this is when you report to a board, it's it's a different gig. And the, and the yeah. celebrity CEO jobs, which are a different path, um, are different altogether. And, and, right. and the second thing I would say is, um, if, if this is what you aspire to look for opportunities for different, uh, uh, jobs that allow you to collaborate and lead in different circumstances with different types of people, um, you know, working among, uh, diverse problems and diverse people. It, it's a huge opportunity. And then the last thing I would say is know thyself. You know, yeah. the um, uh, often the biggest enemy um, when when you get to positions like this is is your own challenges that that you haven't self identified. Well, Pete Lavangi, President and CEO of Bay State Milling Company. Thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thank you, Brent. Have a great afternoon. 
Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.